This is Eakin Alpha's Gil Weinrich, and I'm honored to have on this podcast Douglas Holt Eakin, President of the American Action Forum, a Washington, D.C.-based policy group seeking to engage Americans on complex policy choices they face. Listeners will likely recall that our guest was formerly Director of the Congressional Budget Office, where his job was to help members of Congress make complex policy choices on issues such as tax cuts, Medicare, and Social Security reform. He is currently a speaker at the annual Schwab Impact Conference for Financial Advisors. So, Doug, let's get right to it. What we have seen over the past two decades is that economic growth is slowing, the national debt is growing, wages are stagnating, and funding for Social Security and Medicare grow ever more precarious. Are we on track toward an economic crisis of the sort we experienced 10 years ago, or are recent policy changes sowing the seeds for renewed growth and a solution to the problems that I mentioned? I think in the near term, the outlook's actually quite good. Uh, we've seen a, a big deregulation. Uh, we've seen a big tax bill. We've seen uh, the parties come together and agree on spending levels for the next two years. And that makes a big difference for the economy. And we saw that uh, in the most recent uh, data from the second quarter. We'll see it again in the third quarter. And so I don't envision big problems in 2018-19. I see sustained expansions in the economy. We've seen the unemployment rate drop to lows not experienced in a long, long time. Wages are beginning to pick up. And so many of the travails that you listed are, are being reversed. That doesn't mean we are, we're out of the woods. We have some long-term issues that absolutely have to be addressed, uh, first and foremost among them being the outlook for the federal debt, which is driven by the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Affordable Care Acts of the world. And so unless we put those programs on a sustainable track, the debt will explode and we will have a crisis. But we have a good jumping off point from which to do that, and that's, that's the job of the next Congress. Let's break this down a little bit. How do we get the right balance when it comes to regulatory reform? So here's the setting for this discussion. The Obama administration finalized a costly regulation, something that would have an impact of over $100 million on the economy. It finalized such regulations at a rate of 1.1 per day, every day for eight years, with the total cumulative cost of $890 billion. So there's a well over $100 billion a year of stealth tax increases on the economy. The Trump administration entered in 2017 and added a total of $5 billion to that. And this year, fiscal 2018, anticipates dropping uh, that total by about $2 billion. So it has brought that to a halt. How did it do that? Well, it, it put the agencies on regulatory budgets. They were given numbers that said, you may impose no more costs than X. And if you have a regulation that we need, and we will have regulations we need, you have to find a way to do it at a lower cost, if at all possible. And if you know, there are things on the books that we don't need anymore, get rid of them, take those costs away so that you can hit your budget. The notion that the regulatory state wouldn't have to obey budgets, I think was a fundamental mistake for a long, long time. You have to make sure that a regulation, which is going to have benefits, has costs that are as low as possible. And that was just missing. So I think this is a an important step. I think it's not widely appreciated how important a step it is. I think it would be even better if it was put into law by the Congress and not just uh, done by one administration. There's always the possibility that it could get undone. So we've learned how to not regulate. We've seen that in the past few years. Next step is to learn how to regulate smarter and cheaper. And if we get that done, that, that changes the future dramatically. Let's drill it down a little further and look specifically at the financial sector. It was often thought that a root cause of the last financial crisis was that large financial institutions were too big to fail. Yet today, the five largest banks are bigger than ever. To what extent have we corrected the problems that led to the last financial crisis? I think the core problem in the, the large uh, banks was inadequate capital. Holding more equity capital cures a lot of sins, and those banks are much better capitalized uh, than they were previously. It is also true that there was a, 
a lack of transparency involved in in some of their books. And and we've seen with Dodd-Frank not just additional capital, but additional clarity about the nature of their operations. I am a big fan of the use of stress tests to monitor the, the safety and soundness of institutions. The ultimate question is, when you hit rough economic times, how will this particular bank say with its particular assets and liabilities weather that storm? Well, let's simulate the storm and see how it weathers it. And if it's not going to weather it, then additional steps have to be taken. So I think there is in place a much better regime for those, those large banks. I would say that Dodd-Frank did a lot of things that were probably overreach as well. There was no evidence that, for example, proprietary trading had anything to do with the crisis, and yet we have a very costly, unworkable vocal rule in place. Even if uh, uh, fixed, it's still going to be make it harder to make markets and, and make liquidity less robust. I worry about those things. And the last thing I'd say is, too big to fail is not a failure of the banks. It's a failure of the politicians. They are the ones who decided not to let banks fail out of their fear for the consequences. But I honestly believe that if you go back to the crisis, and, and I was on the Financial Crisis Commission, and we looked at this pretty carefully, we'll never be able to resolve the, the debate over whether we should have uh, you know, saved Bear Stearns, saved Lehman, or let them both go. But certainly the worst thing was to save Bear Stearns and let Lehman go. They, they should decide whether Lehman was going to be saved. They shouldn't have saved Bear Stearns. Then markets would have prepared themselves accordingly. But the politicians made the call, and... The, the financial markets keyed off that. One more area where politicians make an important call, tax reform. Economic theory and U.S. economic history both suggest that low taxes promote economic growth that benefits all. On the other hand, we see today the divide between the wealthiest Americans and everyone else is widening. What is the ideal tax arrangement in today's economy? I think the most recent tax bill has some pieces that are really important. First and foremost, there is no substitute for the middle class to have better real wage growth. And we know that better growth in real wages comes from higher productivity growth. And that's been the missing element of the U.S. economy. For the past five years, it's averaged under 1% a year. And if you're not going to have productivity growth, you can't possibly pay people more without just creating inflation pressures. And, and so we need the productivity growth. What did the most recent tax bill do? Well, it addressed the fundamental uh, mismatch between the U.S. and the rest of the world by moving to a tax system that is based on earning in the U.S. and it lowered the rate to a competitive 21%. It also had some other bells and whistles, investment incentives like expensing, a patent box so that inventions and IP stay in the U.S. All of those things were designed to make the U.S. a better place to innovate, invest, and ultimately generate higher capital and productivity growth. If that works out as those incentives uh, would dictate, that's the best thing that could possibly happen to the middle class. And it'll happen in the U.S. We've seen a little bit of an uptick in wages, a little bit of an uptick in productivity, way too soon to declare victory. But, but hopefully we can put in place a more rapidly growing economy, even though the demographics dictate that we're going the other way. And that would allow us to basically restore the American dream. From the end of World War II to 2007, the U.S. economy grew rapidly enough that even with the arrival of the baby boom, the standard of living doubled roughly every 35 years. In one working lifetime, the standard of living would double, and that was the way people got their access to the American dream. At current rates of growth, it was going to double every 75 years. And the sense of an inability to get ahead was palpable. Getting productivity growth up is the way to, to bring that 75 back to 35 and restore the access to the American dream. Economy. 
economists of every stripe seem to think that trade restrictions are bad for everybody. Does anybody win in today's current trade wars? I, I'm not a big fan of the the trade tactics that we've seen. I worked in a, a Bush White House that imposed steel tariffs. They were a bad idea. They harmed users of steel products more than they helped the producers. They were ultimately declared to be in violation of WTO and had to go away. So we did nothing but incur costs with no particular benefit. This round of steel and aluminum tariffs will be exactly the same. NAFTA, they just recently declared a victory on reaching the USMCA agreement. I think it's definitely better than nothing, and it certainly in- includes uh, some coverage for digital goods and-, and IP products and things that weren't in the original NAFTA. But on the goods side, it actually has more restraint of trade. It has left in place the steel and aluminum tariffs. It has higher regional content requirements. It has minimum wage requirements. It is not a trade agreement. It's, just a- it's an anti-trade agreement, and that will harm the economy as a whole. And I'm deeply concerned about the tactics with China, which simply escalate with no particular uh, exit ramp and site. And so I'm in the mainstream economics group that has watched the world benefit from the expansion of the global trading system. The number of people in sort of desperate poverty has dropped dramatically over the past 30 years as that happened. And that has been built on removing tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade. To go the other direction is to just really play with fire, in my view. You mentioned the rapid rate of growth we enjoyed after World War II, and uh, that was fueled in part, at least, by immigration. Today, immigration is widely unpopular. What, what do you have to say about that? I understand the unpopularity, but the numbers tell a different story. Uh, the native-born population has sub-replacement fertility, which means that in the absence of immigration, the United States shrinks in population, it shrinks in uh, economic size, it shrinks in global influence. The flip side to that is everything about our future is dictated by the choices we make on immigration. So I look at immigration, and instead of this sort of divisive debate, I see the best economic opportunity that we have to put in place a visa-granting system that supports our goals for the future labor force, for future economic growth, and I recognize that no one favors uh, illegal immigration, but we're going to have to find some way to deal with the, the leftover problem as we transition to a new system. So this has been a tough political issue in the U.S. for a long time. It's not going to be an easy political issue next year, uh, magically, but the economics of it are really quite compelling. It is our best tool for preparing the U.S. for the future. Okay, and how about preparing for people's retirement futures? Uh, one issue that comes up constantly is the difficulty of health care. Retirement, health care, inflation has consistently outpaced CPI inflation. Is there something we could do to maintain the quality of health care while addressing the skyrocketing costs? No one has the silver bullet for the continued increase in the pace of health care spending in the U.S. You know, both sides have sort of declared that it's their top priority and both sides have failed. So I'm not going to overstate the ease with which one can address this. But I, I do think we know a couple of things now that we didn't know 10 years ago. First and foremost, the U.S. problem is less and less one of like wasteful utilization and more and more one of high prices. And high prices usually come from inadequate competition. And we should be looking carefully to make sure that there are vigorous competitive markets in the delivery of healthcare. I think that'd be an important thing. Uh, the second thing I think we know is if you pour federal money into a system, whether it's higher education or healthcare, with no particular check on the efficiency of the results, you'll get runaway inflation. And so I think the thing we should look at first is to put Medicare and Medicaid on, on budgets. At the moment, they have an unconstrained draw on the U.S. Treasury, and the beneficiaries and the providers know it. And if they were to understand that there was a finite amount of money and they had to do the best they could for every patient with that money, I think the mindset would be very different. And, and those are the steps that I think I'd take right now. 
putting Medicare on a budget, that actually leads me to what I think is the $21 trillion question. What can we possibly do about mounting debt in the U.S.? Is there something you'd recommend we do about putting the country on a budget? Yeah, I, I think the that first of all, you have to get the metric right. I, the notion that we're going to somehow get rid of the public debt uh, overnight is, is, is too high a bar. I, I'm fond of looking at the debt relative to the size of the economy, debt ratios to GDP. And what I'd like to see is for that number to stabilize and then head down. If we sent the signal to to global financial markets that, that that was going to be on a declining path, however modest, there would be no reason for concern and we could, we could take off the table the tail risk of a big economic crisis. What does it take to do that? Well, it's been a long time uh, for for the left to think they they can just solve by raising taxes and the right has always felt that they could solve it by just having faster economic growth and controlling spending and the truth is they're both wrong we're going to have to have faster economic growth we're going to have to control the spending and we're going to have to raise some taxes and that's not politically sweet music but that's the reality and and over the next decade we're going to see it play out whether they want to or not audience primarily investors i thought i should ask you if you have any advice for investors specifically with regard to how the current normalization of monetary policy will impact markets uh, i think that it's fair to say that the fed is still in a position of having fairly loose monetary policy it will tighten as fast as it needs to and and the the key there again will be productivity growth if, if productivity growth stays flat and the economy runs this hot you're going to see wage pressures that'll turn right into price pressures if you get the productivity growth, those wages can rise without price pressures. That's everything for the Fed. And so they're going to be watching the supply side impacts of the tax cuts and the deregulation. Investors should be too, because that's really going to dictate the future course of monetary policy. Douglas Holtz, Ekin, president of the American Action Forum. This has been a fascinating discussion. I'm certain our listeners have found it of immense value. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you.